this morning. It's kind of funny to even call it that when uh, it's two in the clock afternoon to um, whatever we call it. But uh, this perseverance of saints is a fantastic doctrine, um, like all of these that we've been covering. Um, and so Greg's going to uh, start by explaining it to us how, what it means and what it doesn't mean. But Mark, would you pray for us first, and then we'll let Greg... Um, Help us to get a good understanding to start with. Yes, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider another uh, just really important and wonderful doctrine uh, from Your Word about the Christian life, the doctrine that has been labeled the perseverance of the saints. Some people have called it the preservation of the saints because You ultimately uh, are the one who hold on to us, but we also have responsibilities here. And I pray that You would challenge us and encourage us by the truths we'll look at in just a few moments uh, from Your Word, and that You would give us uh, hearts that are receptive like the Bereans to test it with Scripture and to believe whatever Your Word says. And so I pray we would be edified and You would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, uh, you guys have probably heard the the phrase that we're talking about here, the perseverance of the saints. Um, This is one of the most important doctrines, it's one of the most precious teachings from the Bible um, that we can consider. Uh, Grudem has a good definition of this just to kind of start us off, say what is the perseverance of the saints? Maybe you've thought about this before. You, you might have thought about the concept even if you haven't officially thought about the title um, because this deals with issues. If a, Can a truly saved person lose their salvation, become unsaved and forfeit eternal life, forfeit heaven? Can that happen? And as we're going to see very clearly from Scripture, I think, um, the answer is no. Um, But let's listen to to Grudem's definition. Um, It's on page 336. If you have your book with you, um, I wrote it down in my notes here. I'll give you a sec if you're turning there, some of y'all. All right, so this this is what Grudem Grudem says, how he defines it. I'm going to make some comments after I read this. It says, all those that are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. Grudem hits on the most important points of this doctrine. And it's something that has gone back, um, obviously, from Scripture, but also was recovered very clearly in the Protestant Reformation, and there's two sides to it. Mark mentioned it in his prayer. Um, There's the preservation side by which God preserves His people, and then don't think like preserving like you preserve like pickles in a jar (laughs) or something like that. It's not like you're losing life so that you're just kind of dead, but you're still there. No, this is an, an active continuing of life, continuing of grace, continuing of strength, and, and all the renewal that we need to follow God. So God preserves His people until the end, and God's people persevere in seeking God, in obeying God, in trusting in Christ until the end. So it's two sides of the same, same coin, um, God preserving us and us persevering um, in light of the hope of the gospel. Um, And this is one of the most, like I said earlier, the most precious um, doctrines that we can consider when you think about our assurance um, of salvation, um, our hope that in the end, when I have a a bad day, a bad season, is that it? Is, have I ruined my shot? Have I I forfeited what I'd hoped to have? Um, And what this doctrine does is it helps us remember 
that at the end of the day, in the same way we don't put our hope in ourselves for salvation, our hope at the end of the day is not in ourselves for perseverance. It's in Christ and what he did. Um, But there's a whole lot more that we can say about this. Uh, We've got a a good outline here, a lot of scripture to look at. So, um, Mark, I'm going to pass it off to you at this point. Uh, yeah, I mean, th- this, this doctrine, here's why I think this doctrine really matters to everyday life. Let's, let's be real here. In this room, probably not everybody in this room was raised in church, but a number of us were raised in church. And my guess is, and I'm not trying to, I'm, this, the goal here is not to beat up on the church you grew up in. We should be thankful. For, if, if we grew up in a church and we heard the gospel, we should be incredibly thankful. But there is a possibility that a number of people in this room grew up in a church, perhaps a Southern Baptist church, where you were taught something slightly different here. You were probably taught a phrase like, once saved, always saved. Now, I've got no problem with that statement. I believe it is technically true, but I think that that statement has been used incorrectly and unbiblically countless times. And what I mean is this, technically it is true. It's gloriously true. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. That's Philippians 1.6. That's a promise. If God began a saving work, regeneration, conversion, new birth, forgiveness, if that really happened, you cannot be unadopted out of God's family. You cannot become unjustified. You cannot lose your forgiveness before God. That's absurd, gloriously absurd. That's not possible. But what people have done is they've taken Statements like that that are biblical, and then they've taken them in unbiblical directions. And I think what, they, what you'll end up hearing something is, is this. Well, have you ever prayed to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And you say, yes. When I was six at youth camp or at VBS when I was eight, I prayed a prayer, and I walked an aisle, and you know, I even signed a little card they had for me. I even wrote it in my Bible, the date. And I, yeah, I, I trusted Christ when I was seven. I was baptized a year later when I was eight. And uh, yeah, and then they would say, okay, now, never, ever again question that you are born again. Never, ever a question. Because if, if you're even doubting it, if you're even asking questions, that's from the devil. That Only Satan would want you to ever question that or doubt that. Now, here's the problem with that. Do you see where I'm? <laughs> the problem is, can you pray a sinner's prayer and not be genuinely born again? Yes, I did it like 57 times, okay? I, I, I can do that, okay? It, it's possible. Number two, is it possible to have a false conversion, get baptized, and then after a few months or a few years, your love for Jesus just kind of seems to just completely evaporate? What seemed like love for Jesus just seems to go away, and then can you live for the next 20 years as if you don't really care that much about the things of the Lord? And then what do you do? You give yourself the assurance, well, I know I'm His because I was baptized when I was eight, I prayed the prayer when I was seven, and once saved, always saved. Now, has a, has a truth just been misused? Yes, because here's the part that's being left out. Of course, if you are genuinely born again, you will persevere to the end, but the evidence that I'm genuinely born again is that I persevere in my, in my love for the Lord, in my repentance of my sin, in my renewal of trust in Christ, getting back up when I sin and continuing to pursue God, pursuing the local church, pursuing the people of God, prayer, the, the Word of God. Are there moments we all fail? Yes. Are there moments we take five steps forward and eight steps back? Yes, but at the end of the day, are we making progress in our spiritual lives? If, we're, if we truly know the Lord, the answer must be yes at the end of the day. And if there is no progress, ultimately, over a long time, there's regress only and an abandonment, we should not be falsely assured by the statement, once saved, always saved. Because uh, another way I've heard someone say is, once saved, continually following the Lord. Well, once saved, truly changed, permanently transformed. So that, that needs to be there as well. Papa. You know, I think... Um... I've got my Bible open to Jude, and you know we're going to throw a lot of verses out this afternoon. But 
the doxology in Jude 24, 25 is, is something I discovered many, many years ago and has been a, a rock uh, that I, I personally have, um, have called upon at times. Uh, Jude uh, 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Christ Jesus, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forever. That's, that sounds pretty certain. But he says, keep you from stumbling. What does that mean? Um, that doesn't necessarily mean keep you from sinning. I think it means keep you from falling away, keep you from leaving the faith. Um, and and that's, that's so assuring because I think in this room, I know that, and on this panel even, that we've all struggled with times of dryness, uh, struggled with times of um, doubting our salvation even, particularly when we're younger in the faith. Uh, and so we need to go to verses like this, and, um, and, and I do, and, and, and this will serve you well, not this verse necessarily itself, but there's so many which we're going to share this afternoon. Can I just jump just a quick yes, note? If you're in Jude still, look, look at verse 20 right before that doxology. This is interesting how these go together. Verse 20, but you, beloved, so he's talking to believers, you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, interesting phrase, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Well, it's interesting, ultimately who's keeping us? He is. he is. Ultimately. But we, that doesn't mean we've got nothing to do in the meantime. Hey, keep yourselves in the love of God. Build yourself up in the most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. There's a lot for us to do, and we only do that as the Holy Spirit is granting us those desires, those, those enablings to, to do it. So we have a responsibility, but ultimately God is the one keeping us. Yeah, I think one more foundational thing, and that's so good. And Greg, could you help us with this, or any of you guys? Um, doesn't it ultimately, this, what we think on this topic... Doesn't it go back to whether we believe that God chose us or we chose God? Absolutely. Can you kind of tell us what, because if I really believed that it was up to me to be justified and that that was really on me, then I could probably also say, well, I could probably also unchoose him. Yeah, it was, um, John MacArthur said this, I think I said this before, he was like, it was one of those just short statements that's so profound. He was like, if I could lose my salvation, I would. Yep. Um, and it's, it's true. All of us would say that. Um, yeah. Now, we need to qualify something here because there's a lot of believers who would disagree with us on election um, and the sovereignty of God in that, who get justification right and who get right from Scripture that once you're truly saved, you can't, can't lose, lose that. Now, we're, what we're stressing is the, the misuse of that, which gives people, can give such a false assurance that says, well, if God's the one who saved me, 
well, then I'm good to go and I don't have to worry about anything. You know, maybe I'll obey, maybe I won't, but it doesn't matter because, you know, I wrote that time down in the front of my Bible. So anytime there's doubt, I'm going to show Satan that time that I wrote in my Bible. Um, that's what we're pushing against. Um, there's a lot of folks who I believe are, are by God's grace, inconsistent here. Um, and I don't want to like cast doubt to say like, if, if you don't nuance everything exactly the way we do, then you're heretical and you're out of the faith. Um, but there is an inconsistency that is not helpful, and we want to make sure that we address it. It actually gets to our, our first point um, on an outline. If you want to write this down, this comes from John Piper, but there's, if you get anybody who, you know, who details out this doctrine of perseverance in any, any kind of detail, you're going to get something very similar. This is just the one that we landed on. The first point is this. We must persevere in faith if we are to be finally saved. We must persevere in faith if we are to be finally saved. Um, Now, keep in mind these first few points, they might make us a little uncomfortable because we're so used to the emphasis of, well, eternal security, once saved, always saved. Um, You know, don't worry about your obedience so much. Maybe you'll get serious, maybe not. Um, Let that that uncomfortableness, that awkwardness kind of land on us because we end up with our hope in God and him keeping us, okay? That's where the the ground is gonna be. But we need to feel the weight of the fact that if we follow, if we claim to belong to Jesus, then there is an expectation that we're going to try to obey him. Again, not perfect, not in any any way where we can perfectly obey him, um, but there will be a, a real change of trajectory in our lives saying, okay, now that I identify with Jesus, the trajectory of my life is on following him and his commands, okay? Um, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm just going to look at verses 1 and 2. Um, 1 Corinthians 15. Make sure I get in 1 Corinthians. Okay, now listen to Paul's language here. And again, this is why we have to, to let the whole Bible speak on something um, and be willing to nuance what we say we believe in light of the clear testimony of Scripture, okay? Listen to what Paul says. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. And man, that's where most of us want to stop. But that's not all Paul said. He said, If you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. And so it is possible to have a vain belief by which we don't hold fast, persevere in the truth of the gospel, in believing it and embracing it and living by it. Um, We have a responsibility to pursue Christ in such a way that we prove our faith to have not been in vain. If faith doesn't hold fast to Christ continually, then it's in vain. I don't think we can reach any other conclusion based on a text like this, and this is just one of many, and that's why I say it might make us a little uncomfortable, like Mark's saying, if we're not used to hearing this, this emphasis, but we have a responsibility to hold fast to the truth. And again, as we're gonna see, those who hold fast to the truth are those who have been born again. Let me just put, a, put a, a little comment here. So, by definition, saving faith in the New Testament, in the Bible, saving faith, two things, go with it, always. Okay, so saving faith is going to be, will it change the way you live? 
True saving faith. Yes. So, number one, true saving faith is going to be life-transforming. If it's not, it's not saving faith. James 2, there is living faith and there is what? Dead faith that doesn't do anything. And he says, just like the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Don't think that you're going to be justified and saved ultimately by a faith that doesn't transform your life. It's not a real faith. Demons have that kind of faith. So, number one, saving faith is going to transform your life. But number two, saving faith is, a, is an abiding, permanent thing, if it is genuine. Th- those are the two assumptions of the two teachings of the New Testament about saving faith. Number one, it will transform your life, creating uh, repentance in a whole new direction of your life. Fa- saving faith is going to transform you. Number two, it doesn't go away. If it's real, it abides. It lasts. It doesn't ultimately go away. We have ups and downs, but it ultimately doesn't go away. Now, just take those two facts, and we can defend these biblically, I believe, Take those, if those two things are true, faith changes you and it, it lasts, well then doesn't this whole thing start to make sense? Mm-hmm. If I profess faith, I outwardly change my life around, start reading my Bible, and after six months or six years, I lose interest in God, lose interest in the local church, lose interest in Jesus, and begin to embrace agnosticism or just start to live like I don't really believe in God, and that persists, is my life still transformed? No. So the evidence now is my faith must not have been a genuine saving faith if it does not last in its life transformation. Those two things, transformative and lifelong, those two things are at the core of saving faith. And if you lose either of those, you don't have biblical New Testament saving faith. You might have James 2 dead faith. Yeah. Mark, this is 15 years ago. I don't usually remember what happened 15 minutes ago, but 15 years ago, I remember you talking in Bible class about 2 Corinthians 13, 5, and the importance of that. And not that you ask questions that Satan is the one that asks us whether we uh, And let's are turn there to 2 Corinthians 13, I, 5. I would have love a Bible. to hear you address that because this has been a life-changing thing for me to, um, since you've talked about that a long time ago. Yeah, I mean, you, you will occasionally hear people, I think it may be less common now, thankfully, but, you know, if you ever have a question about your salvation, that's always Satan. And you should never even ask a question about it. And okay, we'll, we'll nuance that a little bit, but look at 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Now, I'll grant you, the Corinthians had their major problems. So there's a reason. Paul doesn't jump to this conclusion for no reason. There was yeah. serious issues. There were serious issues in this church. But he ends his last letter, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. He's talking to members of a church. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope that you will find out that we have not failed the test. And he goes on. But that verse, just what I said to your students a long time ago, I said, okay, I know you love these things. Every semester, no matter where you are in school, you have to take tests and exams, don't you? And tests and exams are the bane of human existence, are they not? That's just the, the thing that looms over you, and you just look forward to the day that you won't have to do any more tests in academia. Then you give the test, and then, that, then you have a, a, a kind of twisted delight in giving the test at that point. That's a different thing. I tell my students, it's so much more fun to give the test than to take the test. So, tests and exams. What are tests and exams full of? They are full of questions. If you don't have questions on your test or exam, you're not taking a test or an exam. They're asking you questions to get the information. Do you know what you claim to know? And the only way they can access that is through questions. Well, Paul says, examine and test yourselves. You know what that involves? That involves asking 
questions about your own self. And listen, this does not mean, this is, this is a fear for today, is th- the point here is not that every professing Christian go home scared that they're not saved. That's not the point here. The point is, if there, if there is real if there are real deep patterns of unrepentant sin coursing through our lives, at that point, Paul would say, like he said to the Corinthians who had their major problems, remember drunk on communion wine, all that stuff? He would say, listen, you need to start asking some hard questions. You need to start examining yourself, testing yourself to see, do I really know the Lord Jesus in a saving way, or is it just an external superficial faith? Is it really down to the core of who I am? Has it changed the deepest values and loves of my heart? And if not, then we must repent and believe truly. And if it has, we should repent afresh anyway and continue our walk with the Lord. Papa. You know, one of the, uh, we're going to be jumping around a little bit. And um, I did some work this morning just in going through Jerry's favorite golden, the chain, Romans 8, 28. And um, I'm not a Greek scholar, uh, mind you. These gentlemen here would um, would be in that category. But uh, I know what I was introduced, I took Greek, and so I was introduced to the aorist tense, which is the dominant tense in, in Greek. And it's basically a past tense, continuous action type thing that was action that was completed in the past. So I want to read you this for a minute and show you where, what the tenses of these verbs. And we know that God, Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined. Stop. Aorist active indicative. It's already completed. It's past action. It's done. It's done for us. To become conformed to the image of his son so that he might be firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, the same thing. He also called. That's also aorist active indicative. It's completed action. It's done. He called us. That's in the past. It's completed. Uh, now, this was completed before you were ever born, before the creation of the world, mind you. And, these, and those whom he called, he also justified. Again, aorist, active, indicative, completed action in the past. And those whom he justified, again, same thing. He also glorified. That's even better. That's already done. We're there. We're glorified. Now, we got to live this life. We've got to go through sanctification. But in the end, he will glorify us. And he says that right here. He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? To me, that's greatly assuring. Yeah, and that's a lot of, on the other side of the coin, that God is going to keep us. Yes, that's right. Wait, Jerry, just because they call this the golden chain, if you haven't heard that before, but Jerry, why is it the golden chain, and why is it this such a, jumping off what Fred just said, why is this so encouraging for believers? Yeah, I just think, no, those links are so tightly held together, and that once you are predestined, once you are foreknown, you're predestined, and once you're predestined, you're called, and once you're called, you're justified, once you're justified, you're glorified, there isn't any way anyone's going to be, like 31 says, if God's for us, who can be against us? Who can break that chain, that golden chain? And I love, Papa, what you're saying. Even that last word, we're glorified past tense. Well, we're not even in heaven yet. How can that be past tense? Because it's so sure. It is such a sure deal. 
And so this is on the other side of the coin from that first point that Greg said that we must persevere in faith if we're going to be finally saved. So there is a part on us, but God's ultimately the one. And I, I don't, can't imagine a better passage than that 28 through 32 to which, which just right off that, if, if, if you see that, that means everybody foreknown is predestined. Everyone predestined, God will call sovereignly. Everyone God calls in this sense will be justified. The, the, you can't be in one part of the chain and not in the other part of the chain. That's why they call it a chain. So if you've been, if you've been called sovereignly by God to Christ, then you will believe and be justified. And if you are justified, your glorification is guaranteed. It's so sure it's said in the past tense, and it hasn't happened yet, but it's in the past tense because it's so certain to happen. It is so certain that we will be resurrected and glorified. So what is astonishing here is every single person who God ever justifies declares righteous despite their sin because of Jesus. Every single person God justifies will be glorified. And that's where you can get a statement like once saved, always saved from. But again, we've got to be careful how we handle a statement like that. But that's clearly now, true. The exact same number of people that were foreknown will be glorified because it's that same progression that happens. It's a, oh, it's a glorious thought. And, and it just, and if you're struggling, if you're on the struggle bus, go to that passage. <laughs> go to that passage because it is so reassuring. Now, ask the question, Mark's question from uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Ask those questions, but then be comforted by that phenomenal passage. Just since we're in Romans 8, glance back in the same chapter. Uh, it, we, we should all know Romans 8, 1. If you haven't, uh, that's just such a wonderful verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But then look also at verse 13. Mm -hmm. I'll start in verse 12, Romans 8, 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, that's our sin nature, Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now, then pause there. I don't think that means physically die because everybody will physically die. This, this is talking about eternal death. This is, this is death under God's condemnation, hell. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So, uh, Greg, can you help us out a little bit with, with, this, with this verse here? It, it sounds like we, there, there is some real work for us to do by God's Spirit in putting our sin to death. Yeah, there is um, real work here. Um, was it John Owen? I think we mentioned this if, in sanctification. Like, you, we are to be killing sin or sin will be killing us. Mm -hmm. um, it's a daily battle. It's, it's a warfare that we're involved with. Um, but again, this is our responsibility in light of our identity in Christ in light of what God has done for us in saving us. This is, um, this is part of what it means to belong to Christ. And the reason why I say that, look at verse 14, okay? This is key to verses 12 and 13. You say, well, how can you say that that's what we have to do? He says, for, this is grounding what he just said, mm -hmm. all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. How do you know someone who's led by the Spirit of God? They're fighting their sin on a daily basis. If you're not fighting your sin, you're not a child of God. That's the conclusion we reach from this. And that's something I think we need to keep in mind because, again, verse 14, if you're led by the Spirit of God, well, we all want to be led by the Spirit of God, but Paul told us what that looks like in verses 12 and 13. You're putting to death the deeds of the body. 
That's what children of God do. By the Spirit. By the Spirit. In the power of the Spirit, in the light of the Word of God, in the truth of God. There's a whole lot more we could say that we don't have time to get into right now on that. But it's like, if you belong to Christ, you will be seeking to slay your sin on a regular basis. I mean, that's just what it means to be a child of God. Um, and so we can't escape that. Now, l- let me just jump in here, because th- th- this is something that may be in your mind. I think this comes into my mind at this point in this conversation, which is saying, well, okay, but everybody in this room sins. Everybody in this room sins. Nobody's perfectly fighting their sin. And so, how do I know, how do I keep assurance of salvation if I fail so often? I have so many bad moments. How can I still maintain assurance with sin that still indwells within me? Thoughts on that question? I'm saying Papa does. (laughs) (laughs) I've got to read this and Forgive me, but it's, it's a little bit lengthy. But this is, uh, he makes four points, Piper does, in his presentation from the Westminster Confession. And the first two regard that we will persevere and, and be preserved, and, and et cetera. But there's a nevertheless here, which I think is really important. Nevertheless, they may, that's us, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalence of corruption remaining in them and the neglect of the means of their preservation fall into grievous sins. That's us. And for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. He doesn't say that we're lost. Mm-hmm. He says, these are the consequences of that temporary sabbatical you've taken from your sanctification walk. Mm-hmm. There will be consequences. Uh, this is not falling away, and that should be comforting. Now, I know this is not Scripture, but this is from the Westminster Confession and is a composite of what Scripture really says, that there is discipline. We've talked about that before. Mm-hmm. And, and, but God will... God will carry us through this. We've already been, he foreknew us, he predestined us, he adopted us, he saved us, he justified us, he's going to glorify us, and it's past tense. Yeah, I I think it'd be worth turning to 2 Corinthians 7.10. Seems like repentance is a key. If there is continual sin in our life and we are not repentant, um, and that means that we mm. change direction. Um, Mark, Same. what do you say? It's not perfection. Christianity is not perfection, but a change of direction. 7, 10, and uh, 11 here. I think this is so good. Second Corinthians 7, 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So all sin has consequences. And some people are sorry for their sin because they got caught. But that's not true believers. True believers, we hate our sin because it robs God of the glory that he truly deserves. And we will repent. Now, are we slow to do that sometimes? I think absolutely. Yes. Uh, In our hard-heartedness. But ultimate repentance has got to be there. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But what er eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. 
seal, what punishment. At every point, you prove yourself innocent in this matter. And so there needs to be an eagerness to race back to the cross when you sin. Don't hide. We're studying Adam. Adam, hide. Hid from God when he sinned. We're not to hide from him. We're to go to him. Go to him. Repent. Confess our sin. And, uh, and certainly he's always faithful and just to forgive us. So it seems like repentance is a huge key. On, to use an illustration of like, say you're on, I have no experience with this. Say you did cross country in high school or something. And uh, I'm just going to use my imagination because <laughs> I only walk to my car. Okay, that's the, the furthest I do. That's cross driveway. Uh, anyways, uh, so imagine you do cross country. And uh, is there a slight difference between a person who, they, they come to practice, they go to the games. Once in a while, they stumble, they fall in the, in the middle of the race, they get back up, they keep going. Maybe, maybe once a year, they even skip practice or something, but they, they come back, they apologize, they make it right, they keep going. Okay, that, that's a flawed person, but that's just anybody, right? And then imagine somebody who, you know, they try out a couple times and they say, I, this is not for me, I'm not going, I'm not going back, all right? They trip on the race and they say, I skinned my knee, I don't want to do this anymore, I'm out of here. And they go stand by the van and wait till the whole thing's over and just go home and quit. Are both flawed? Yes, but are they even sort of similar? No. And so similarly, are we going to scrape our knee in our spiritual life all the time? We're going to have the wrong tone, the wrong word choice, everyday thoughts that we shouldn't have. Just, this is everybody all the time. But we hate our sin. We, we, we get back up. We, we thank the Lord for His grace and forgiveness. That is different than the person who says, I'm just weary of the Bible and church. I'm just weary of being around Christians. I'm just weary of watching and listening to sermons. I'm, I'm weary of listening to Christian podcasts and prayer. It just, it just grates on me. Mm. I kind of want to spend my life doing something more enjoyable over here. Do you see how different those two things are? One is all of us. You know, I mean, we, we all struggle. Another one is just saying, I give up. I, I just, I don't have, I, it's not delightful. It's not joy. It's pure drudgery. It's always duty. It's always willpower. There's no joy in Jesus. I can't stand, I'm just sick of it. And we just kind of slowly drift away. The, the, that's what we're talking, we're talking about. That's the warning. Is that right there? Drifting away from our salvation. Those who ultimately drift away bear evidence that they are not truly born again. But those who skin their knees spiritually, that's every single Christian who's ever lived uh, with, our, with, our, with our ups and downs and good and bad moments. Yeah, Hebrews 2 says, don't drift. Don't drift. Um, similar verse to the Corinthians verse um, is Romans 2. Or do, I think Paul took it from Romans 2. Let's see, which came first? Uh, I guess it would be Corinthians. But anyway, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Mm. So that's the participation that, that we have and to lead us to repentance. Greg, help on that? Um. No, y'all go. My mind, I just totally lost what I was going to say, so y'all go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> yep, that's good. Mark 13, 13, one more verse on this idea that we must persevere to the end. This one struck me. I hadn't remembered it. I just think it's very clear, very good, easy one to remember, 13, 13, and Mark is our pastor. Mark 13, <laughs> uh, 13 here. And you will be Mark hated. thirteen thirteen. Yeah, Mark thirteen thirteen. Sorry, Mark thirteen thirteen. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end. All true believers will endure to the end. That's going back to the golden chain. It's going back to what all the Scripture convinces us of. And um, and so we we will persevere. 
if God has us in his loving right hand. And John 10, if you want to write these down, is a beautiful passage on this. John 10, very convincing, 26 to 30, especially. Romans 8, not going to get better than that. Um, And the whole chapter really may be a commentary on that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I would love your thoughts on this. First John really was written, right, to convince, and I guess now I'm talking to you, especially if you're struggling sometimes to say, boy, do I really, am I really assured? Am I truly a believer? First John is a great passage, um, book to convince us of that. Mark, you've had these struggles of doubts sometimes, probably even after you were truly a believer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. More of them afterwards probably than before. Tell us about that because I don't want us to feel like, you know, we're we're sunk if those doubts come. No. Okay. Some of us by our natural personality or disposition are more prone to doubt, and some of us are more prone perhaps to overconfidence, right? Those are both issues that people have by personality. Some might be presumptuous, like They just think God's going to let them into heaven no matter how they live their life, and they presume on God's grace. But I struggled after my conversion, my real conversion, not my false ones, my real one, when I was truly converted, uh, I did struggle uh, on and off for a period of time about about my standing with God. And um, first John actually tells, John tells us why he wrote the letter. It's it's in chapter 5, verse 13. I love it when a book tells you why it's written. Mm -hmm. Now, there's no doubt. Why did you write this, John? 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. So John says, listen, I wrote this letter to give you assurance if you're a genuine believer that you would know that you know Him. And also to expose spurious faith, false faith, which is also one of the things he does throughout that letter. Oh yeah, chapter 3 in 1 John, if your faith is a... uh... A bogus one, he definitely will, that passage will call you out quickly um, on that. Final uh, thoughts. We have uh, more work to do next week on this passage for sure, um, on this subject for sure. But uh, final things kind of to, uh, to help us go forward. I want to ask a question. I think I, think I can get the question right. Um, every believer perseveres, but at the end of the day, will everyone have, have made the exact same progress and look exactly the same at the end? I think maybe we need to address that, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, if we can. I mean, we've got, I don't know, five minutes, um, you know, because we, we hear something like this, and we might be tempted to think, okay, what's the metrics for this? How do I measure this? What does it look like, you know, daily? Does it mean I read so much in my Bible? I've slayed so many sins. I've shared the gospel so many times, you know, I've repented. Ex- what, is, what does this look like? Or, or should we say, why do we need to like keep some general principles, but not expect everybody to look exactly the same and be in the same place at the same time? It's good. Like, it's what do, how account. do we address that? Our shape, are, we're, we're the shape and we're not the same. And, and you mentioned John 10, Jerry, a minute ago. I want to read that. But do you not believe, John 10, 26, but do you not believe because you're not, a, but you do not believe, I'm sorry, I can't read, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. 
And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. I never forget, I was using this as an illustration. I was actually preaching on the good shepherd uh, at my home church. And, and I had a little staff, you know, actually it was a, gen a genuine shepherd staff. And I had a bunch of kids. I was doing a children's sermon before the big people sermon. And, and I had a bunch of kids down front and I had them all. I said, now you guys follow me. And so they started following, and then single file, and then one of them peeled off, <laughs> ran to his mama. <laughs> he didn't want to follow. <laughs> so all the sheep are different. Uh, that doesn't mean they're, they're uh, lost. They're just different. And if you know anything about sheep, they can be very cantankerous. They do their own thing. And we're that way. That's why he compares us to sheep, I think, sometimes. So. But always follow the shepherd. Yeah, that's good, Mark. Um, yeah, that, that's a great question, Greg, about that. No, I don't think everybody ends up at the exact same you know, spot on the sanctification uh, grid because uh, who's ever going to catch Paul before we die? But um, I would say instead of primarily getting assurance from when I was seven, a lot of us have been trained to think that way. When I was seven, this is what I did, I'm a Christian. We, we got, we've, got to, we've got to distance ourselves a little bit from that. I, I, I think the Bible is crystal clear. Yes, you can look back to the past. There's nothing wrong with that. You can see a transformation. That's wonderful. But the Bible always says today. If you, hear his heart, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. So in other words, the question I would ask for all of us is right now today, is your heart got a vice grip on a sin right now? Nobody knows about it but you. In your heart of hearts, You've got something that is wrong, that you have got your, uh, your heart gripped onto, and you do not want to let it go, and it's taking control of your life. Maybe it's not visible, but there it is. You're holding on to it. If that is the case, I would say you need, you need to hear the warning passages. If you continue down a road of unrepentant sin, that is a serious thing. But if today you go, look, I've got all kinds of flaws. I'm flawed everywhere I look. I can think of 10 things I did wrong yesterday, but I hate my sin. I don't want to be grumpy. I want to be kind. I want to be patient. I want to be like Jesus. My heart is towards him. He, I love him. I delight in him. He, he is so kind and gracious to me. I'm not perfect, but I want more of Christ. I want to pursue Christ. I, 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 that's what, I, I want his word. I want his people. I want uh, you know, the Lord's table. I want these things in my life because I want to know him better. That is a wonderful indicator of the Lord being at work in your life right here and right now. So I, the Bible primarily points to the here and now. Don't be deceived by yesterday. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but, but listen. Yeah, I got to tell you about a terrifying thing. There's a lot of things I've done in my past that have, um, that have not been right, but this is one of my just deepest regrets. When I was probably, I was a new youth pastor right out of Bible college, spoke at a um, kind of a thing for middle school and high school students. Um, a lot of students responded. I don't think a lot of students, I don't know how many of them were truly responded to the truth. I think the gospel may have been clear. I don't think all of them responded. And I gave them a great assurance that because of this moment right now, you are truly a believer. And I fear that could be what Mark's saying, that many of them will go back to that day and say, in 1990, I prayed to receive Christ at this park. 
with this guy in a wheelchair that now I think I'm a believer. And that it truly wasn't that. And so I think we have to be careful to say, not give people a false assurance. If they pray to receive Christ, we want to say, and one of my favorite people said, he went to someone, he prayed to receive Christ. He went to someone who had prayed for this for him for years. And the guy told him, hey, good, come back in a year. Come back in a year and tell me how you're doing. And I thought that is a far more biblical way to see. Not that we shouldn't nurture and continue that, but let's not give people a false sense of assurance like Mark's saying because of a, a prayed prayer. Can I follow up on that real quick with an illustration? Um, you all know we love Charles Spurgeon here, um, but I think it, it really pictures what you're, what you're saying there. Um, and he's talking about the issue of conversion, but I think it, it ties into this. Um, Spurgeon was walking down the street, and there was a guy who was, was drunk. I mean, he was obviously drunk, inebriated, swat, you know, staggering, whatever, a little bit slurred speech. And he says to him, Mr. Spurgeon, Mr. Spurgeon, I'm one of your converts. Spurgeon looks at him and says, well, you must be one of mine. You're certainly not one of the Lord's. Um, and then the point is, um, you know, we're going to say more on this next week, but the, but the point is, um, we, like you're saying, we don't want to give people a false assurance. It says, again, not that we're preaching perfectionism, but genuine conversion to Christ leads to genuine change of life that leads to a a, a, a continual habit of repentance and faith until the end. Mm -hmm. um, and we, sh it, we should never reach a point where we're okay with our sin, we're okay with being slack, we're okay with not seeking God, not attending church, not reading our Bibles, not praying, not fellowshipping. Um, and so we, we have to avoid giving people the, 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 the idea that says, you know, those things are optional because they're not. Um, if we neglect those, then that's saying something in very huge about the state of our soul. That's good. Jerry, would you pray for us? Yeah. Gracious Father, we're so thankful for no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We pray that we would, um, as we persevere to the end, that you would receive the glory from that. We thank you that you hold us in your loving right hand, that there is the no snatching rule. No one will snatch us out of your loving right hand. We're so thankful. And so we commit this to you. My prayer, maybe my uh, deepest prayer today would be if anyone is in here that is yet to know the Savior, Lord, that you would grip their heart, give them the faith to believe the gospel. And if someone's counting on, a, um, on being, uh, having a saving faith where it's not for real, that they would, from 2 Corinthians 13, 5, ask those questions, see that they need a Savior, and race to you. In Jesus' name, amen.